everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the Horror Salem something else halls. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And as promised, here is the live episode, our first ever live episode on American Psycho. And we're not fully live yet. Uh, we just wanted to record a quick intro, and this is a bonus episode this month, so you're getting two episodes for the price of one, even though you don't pay. And <laughs> Well, maybe uh, you do. And maybe you do. And if you want to contribute, and a big part of us getting to Salem, even though Salem Horror Fest was very generous and uh, helped us out along the way, we were able to get there with some of the donations that we received. And if you want to donate and you like what we do, you can find that donation button at the bottom of our page on facultyofhorror.com. So this episode was recorded live at Salem Horror Fest in early October. We were releasing it to you now in the hopes that you're in the midst of your holiday bullshit. If you're anything like me, it's total bullshit. You're not loving it. You're loving horror and you're wishing you were spending your holidays with us instead of your family. Yeah, whether you are traveling somewhere or just hunkering down, trying to forget what is going on, here is some extra content to hopefully get you through this time, because some people love it, some people hate it, some people are in between, so here is an angry white male being angry to destroy everything, and uh, we had a great time recording this. It was super fun, and I hope you guys really enjoy this. This was brand new for us to do, and it was such a great crowd, and big, big thank you to Salem Horror Fest and the festival director, Kevin Lynch, who was amazing to work with. Amazing. Amazing. We cannot say enough great things about him. Clearly super passionate about what he does, passionate about horror, and passionate about making this community bigger and more accepting. He was a joy to work with, so make sure you are following Salem Horror on all of their social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'll link it all in the show notes for this, because hopefully they'll they'll have some announcements soon about 2018. So you want to stay in touch with them, see what's going on. And I will say an extra note, in this episode, I talk about a book that I was actually reading on the trip, and I foolishly thought I might be able to finish it before we got to record the live episode, but Andrew and I were having so much fun, uh, I didn't get to, and it was a book called Lunar Park by Brett Easton Ellis. Patrick Bateman shows up in this book, that's why I was reading it. Brett Easton Ellis wrote it as kind of a fake memoir, and I mentioned this book really briefly in the episode, and then I finished it very soon after I was back in Toronto, and I I really enjoyed it, and it's kind of the literary equivalent to Wes Craven's New Nightmare. So if you're keen on American Psycho, if you're keen on the idea of Patrick Bateman, I really strongly recommend picking up Lunar Park. Yeah, I've got no notes to append to this episode other than I have improved my grammar and spelling skills, and um, yeah, you'll see what I mean by that in a minute. Enjoy the episode, guys. Happy holidays. Hello, hello, hello. Usually, during the year when I come up here, I like to say, hello, Salem. But I have a feeling that we don't have a lot of people from Salem here. How many people are actually from Salem? Wow. All right, where are we from? California. California, wow. Where? Holy crap. Oh, this is like the Animaniacs episode. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for being here. This is the first ever Salem Horror Fest. I know 
one should have already existed by now, but here we are, better late than never. Um, so very excited uh, for all of you to be here. We've had an amazing first three weeks, one more to go. We got two screenings tomorrow. We're doing a double feature of The Mist and They Live, a special Columbus Day screening. And then we um, next weekend, we're Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Cruising. Uh, we've got Halloween 3, the redemption screening, and uh, Videodrome, Let the Right One In, and Fright Night. So I hope you'll be able to join us for any one of those or all of those. Um, and uh, uh, tonight is really special because of all the things that we have programmed this year. Um, the thing I've been most looking forward to is welcoming uh, the hosts of uh, Faculty of Horror here from Toronto. I've been a fan for three years. Um, and I just devour every episode as soon as it comes on. Um, and they've just been so fabulous to work with and are so cool. And I know that's why you're all here. So um, this is, in fact, their first ever live podcast. And they've promised to be very exclusive with um, whether or not they do this in the future. Um, so we are extremely honored to be uh, hosting them for this this, this uh, special occasion, and to you guys for being here. So um, without further ado, I would like to welcome uh, Andrea Subasati and Alexandra West. Hi, everyone. Hi, welcome everyone. back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of Cinema Salem. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And holy shit, guys, it's our first live episode, as Kevin just said, and... Uh, Might be the last. Yeah. <laughs> this sucks. No, we're having a great time. We are having a <laughs> blast. It's amazing to see all of you and to hear that you've traveled far and wide. It's awesome to see our t-shirts in the crowd. You guys rule. We have the best listeners in the world, and it's what keeps us going on. And I mean, it is kind of weird because normally we just do this. Um, it's just Andrea and I, and it's just, you know, us hanging out at the Roomorg Manor, drinking, and um, we, we negated on the chips tonight just because of all the crunching that Andrea, future Andrea will have to cut out. But normally it's just us, two girls hanging out in your ball gowns, <laughs> just, doing, just doing a podcast. But, <laughs> but we, uh, when we were asked to do um, Salem Horror, uh, Kevin said very generously, do whatever you want. Anything you guys want to do, you can do it. And we looked at his lineup, this awesome uh, program he's put together, and we realized we were on the same night as American Psycho. And American Psycho, it just, it just feels like the right time to talk about it. It's one of those ones we've been asked about, you know, on and off again throughout the years from maybe some of you in this room. And um, um, and another thing we get on the podcast a lot, because um, I'm the one that answers all your emails. Um, and uh, it's always like, but, but Alex and Andrea, what about the white straight cis man? <laughs> what about him? He. Um, and believe me, Andrea and I love you white straight cis men. And, uh, you know, and uh, it, it just felt like if we were going to talk about what it is to be the white, straight, cis, man. Um, it, this was the kind of movie to talk about it, and it feels like the movie to talk about right now, given where your country is at right now, because we are recording this in the United States and uh, not in Canada, so we have to watch what we say. Yeah, watch your hashtags so that we don't get... I already got detained by the border in spite of my long sleeves. I don't know, I don't know what I did wrong. 
But yeah, this this yeah, this is going to be our love letter to the white cis male. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating when I was doing research for this episode how many uh, white cis male reviewers were on board with this film is horrible. This film is so harmful to women. You ever notice that the critics who speak loudest about how films are harmful to women aren't in fact women? Um, Ebert had some shitty shit to say, and uh, when I was doing my research, I found somebody who wrote, you know, uh, American Psycho is a feminist film. And I was like, oh. And then it went on to say, because it depicts men negatively. And I was like, oh. (laughs) You missed the point by a long shot. So you've heard us, you know, we, we never came out as a feminist podcast, but it just turned out to be that way. We're a horror podcast from a feminist standpoint, and uh, we realized that that men are also hurt by patriarchy, and men are complicit in the battle against patriarchy and against these gendered divides. So, um, so yeah, really stoked to talk about this. Yeah, this is like the darkest timeline we could imagine um, for the white American male. And... Um, I think coming to this film, like, I actually saw this in theaters. I saw this in theaters with my father. (laughs) And and I'll tell you why. Um, Because when I was younger, um, I loved the 90s version of Little Women with Winona Ryder. And, um, and of course, Christian Bale plays Laurie in it. And he's so charming and he loves Joe so much but then he respects her enough to walk away and then he goes after Amy because he really loves her oh my god okay I need a moment but it's great and so I was like oh my god Christian Bale and horror movies finally yes and my mom who was always too scared of horror movies was like you guys go so I wound up watching weird sex stuff with my dad um and it's something we don't talk about but I, I learned some positions that day. That's, that's what I have. <laughs> okay, so like, we're going to record this the way we record our episodes. Uh, I think you know that our episodes are edited. They're edited for clarity. They're edited for smooth, nice flow. I drop in what? <laughs> You've got a dirty joke to make about smooth, nice flow. Just go ahead. Go ahead and make it. This is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about that I would edit out. But you're here. You made the trip. You're going to get it all. You're going to hear the cutting room floor. And uh, yeah, thanks once again for coming. Shall we dive in to the film? Yeah. I just, um, your skin, it looks really good tonight. Just Perfect. To so looks normally. Really good on your body. Yes, it does. On your flesh. This is where we would Neat drop in bag. the trailer. And uh, we're not going to drop in the trailer today. We're just going to get right through it. Alex is going to give us a quick synopsis just to refresh our memories. And then we're going to get psycho. Yeah, flashback, I will. Um, So I'm going to do this a little lax as opposed to our usual way of doing synopsis because you guys are about to watch it. Um, And I don't want to give away too, too much in case you guys haven't seen it in a while or haven't seen it at all. So... American Psycho, we're basically just following Patrick Bateman. It is 1987. He is a 27-year-old hotshot Wall Street investment banker kind of sort of maybe. Um, All we know about him is he's super high-powered. He's a VP at a company called Pierce & Pierce. He just goes to work every day, and he's got a rigorous skincare routine. He's got a rigorous exercise routine. He's got a rigorous killing routine. He loves some sexual depravity. Um, He 
basically is everything that society aspires to and everything society fears. And all of a sudden, one night, he is pro- he he kills a potential or perceived rival. And then everything starts to go to hell. All of a sudden, a detective is kind of maybe sort of on his tail. And then everything just keeps spiraling out of control. He keeps getting more women involved in his weird sexual fantasies. He keeps brutalizing them. He keeps brutalizing other people, homeless people, people of color. It's it's a, just an epic shit show of mon- uh, huge proportions. And... Um, Ultimately, what happens is everything spirals out of control until we are left to wonder as an audience what is real and what is not. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's, that's all I'm going to tell you because yeah. you guys are about to watch it. Um, so uh, I'm sure as many of you know, this film started as a book, a really contentious book by Brett Easton Ellis. And I uh, managed to get through the book before recording this. I finished it about a month ago. And I had stayed away from Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, He's just, he's kind of one of those trolling figures online. I find him a bit exhausting. But I was like, I've got the time, I'm going to read this book. And I read it and I loved it. I liked it way more than I thought I would. I kind of understand if people don't like it, but it was weird. It was dark. It was disciplined. It made me laugh out loud several times. And, you know, I don't always have those relationships with books in that way. And the book doesn't, it's not fully successful, but um, I did take away a lot from it. Um, But of course, if any of you don't know, when it was published in 1991, there was a huge controversy around it. Now, um, Ellis has said that uh, the character of Patrick Bateman is kind of based on his father and other Wall Street investor guys. And uh, he he kind of inundated himself with that New York crowd for a bit to really get a sense of of them. And um, what happened was... um, it's really kind of the last great literary controversy um, that I can remember. So, you know, you have things like um, uh, Lolita, Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses, all these things that were blowing up. And then you had American Psycho. And what happened with American Psycho is originally going to be published by Simon & Schuster. And then as the galleys, the kind of proofs started going around, female employees of Simon & Schuster read it, and they protested the book. And then um, it was... Uh, Time and Spy magazine obtained excerpts of the book and were able to write about how graphically violent it was, particularly against women. And so before the book was even released, there was this kind of um, moral panic about American Psycho. People were losing their shit over it. And so Simon Schuster canceled the book. Uh, Brett Easton Ellis was allowed to keep his six-figure advance, and then eventually it sold to Random House's vintage division uh, for an undisclosed amount. Um, And it was released. Uh, It didn't stop all the boycotts from happening. Um, The biggest one in America was the um, LA chapter of the National Women's Organization. Um, It was sold, you know, in like um, opaque plastic bags. It had warnings on it. It was basically like going to a sex shop to buy this book. Um, But then to tie it back to Canada briefly, it also kind of entered, as things were beginning to die down, it re-entered the public imagination because one of our, one of the Canadian famous serial killers by the name of Paul Bernardo, when he was on trial for killing and raping and doing horrific things, uh, referred to American Psycho, Psycho as his Bible. 
So because horror needs that, right? Because we're not tired of like defending horror movies as inspiring psychopaths and serial killers. And it's it's weird to me to think about this book and this film as misogynist. Um, Brett Easton Ellis is a gay man. He doesn't like to publicize that a lot, but it has come out. Um, and it, the film is directed by Mary Heron, a woman who we're going to talk about in a moment. So it's kind of this outside view of a person. And I think if I think when you know someone really well, you can see them better than they can see themselves. And I think to create a satire out of this novel and out of this character and out of this idea of the late 80s yuppie, um, it, it could, I don't know if it could have been done by a straight white man. I really don't. Um, and if it had, I think so much of the conversation about it would have been detracted. And there's enough detraction about the book and the film itself. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really... It's a really sensational book, and I can see why people got upset. But um, Patrick Bateman, it's interesting to me because they really focused on the violence against women in the book. But Patrick Bateman hates everyone. The slurs he uses in the book, the hatred, it's like, it's palpable. I was reading it on the public transit back at home, and I was just like, ugh, I don't feel good about this. And, um, and I think when people kind of come and are like, you know, this movie's misogynistic, Martyrs is misogynistic, this, that, and the other is misogynistic. It, to me, it's, the question is, um, are the filmmakers or the creators, whomever it is, making this stuff sound cool? Like, is it cool to beat a woman? Is it cool to rape her? Is it cool to kill her? Is it cool to do that to anyone? And is that character likable? If they are, then yeah, we need to have a talk about misogyny. But this is such a deeply disturbing satire that if we don't talk about it, if we don't show these kind of stories, if you're not exposed to them, then we're just making Disney films the whole time. And Disney films have their place, but we need to start having different conversations. Yeah, I think it's great that you brought Martyrs into that discussion because I think that's another film that we often have to defend against claims of misogyny and you know violence against women. Women make up half of the population, so you can't simply wipe away violence against women as a misogynist film. You have to look, as Alex said, um, into what it's saying and also whether or not it's in service to the plot. And in this particular film, I think that's very much the case. Uh, I'm going to go to Mary Heron. You want to talk about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mary Heron is a, a perfect person to direct this film. And it's kind of funny because she was tapped uh, because she's a woman. Because after the controversy of the book, they wanted to make sure that that box was kind of ticked. Oh, I can't be misogynist because it was made by a woman, right? And that's a problematic box, but they ticked it off. And Mary Heron is Canadian-born. She lived in the UK for a while. She dated Tony Blair for a while. She was involved in the 1970s punk scene. She was a drama critic. She was a punk journalist. She worked on uh, PBS's Edge. She's very dedicated to exploring popular culture. So I think she was a perfect candidate to take a text like this and derive the pop culture and the satire and the critique while taking some of the more problematic torture porn elements and making them comedic too. And as a result, we've got American Psycho. And American Psycho, the film, has a kind of storied production history. Um, it was originally developed, uh, it was bought by um, Lionsgate, and then Mary Heron got brought on very early, did a whole round of casting for Patrick Bateman. It was really hard to find the right person. They found Christian Bale, a.k.a. Laurie, and... Um, 
don't do that. AKA Bruce Wayne, am I right? Listen. Listen. So, okay, no, I'm going to mention Laurie again because it's so fucked up because Samantha, Mantha, Samantha Mathis, who plays... Wait, I, ha I actually have a whole cheat sheet right here. Uh, Samantha Mathis plays Courtney, who uh, he is having the affair with uh, throughout the film, and she played Amy. They were going to get married. They were so happy. <laughs> Bateman is an... <laughs> What is it? it? It's not an acronym. It's not a synonym. What is it when you rearrange the letters? What's that called? An, an, anagram. Anagram. It's an anagram for Batman. <laughs> Just saying. We have to stop doing this because we're almost halfway through and we haven't even started. So okay. Leave um, the Lori shit. So <laughs> I would edit it out if I had the power. Future Andrea does have the power. Um, but uh, so, so Mary Heron was well on her way to getting this stuff done under, like, she was doing it. Uh, got a whole cast together, and then all of a sudden, Leonardo DiCaprio started expressing interest. It was right after Titanic. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Oliver Stone started, he came on board, and Mary Heron and her entire cast were fired and replaced with Oliver Stone, Leonardo DiCaprio, and he cast a whole bunch of other people. And then Leonardo DiCaprio quite famously left to go make The Beach. Uh, which was directed by Danny Boyle. <laughs> yes. Come on, the beach is good. No, it's not. We don't have a lot of time. We're going to talk about this afterwards. Join us at the bar. Um, uh, but um, then, uh, so Leonardo DiCaprio left. Oliver Stone was left with these spiraling budgets. And, and Lionsgate, which is an independent distributor still to this day, was like, shut it down. Shut it down. So they got, they cleared the slate yet again, asked Mary Heron to come back, and she did. Um, it, my research, all I could tell, the only person she kept from the Oliver Stone production was Chloe Sevigny as Jean, Patrick Bateman's secretary. Um, but it's, uh, it's quite the story. So to eventually, you know, they were going to shoot in 96, it, like that's when it was all starting. So to finally get it released for 2000 is a very dramatic few years, but uh, they did it. Note to editing, Andrea, Bateman is not an anagram for Batman. <laughs> I just wrote it down. I was like, what do I do with that E, dum-dum? Is it E-Batman, like an E-Sig? <laughs> Electronic Batman. All right, okay. <laughs> Moving right along. I felt so bad I hadn't realized it was an anagram. Oh, it's a something. No, it's not. It's You're close to Batman. You're taking out the E. Okay, Lori. You guys All right. know I'm right. So, serial killers are defined <laughs> as a murderer of two or more people in service to their own personal gratification, usually male, usually linked to mental illness, usually involving sexual contact with their victims, and usually perceived, these people Wait, are perceived as normal weird. to the, what? I don't have sexual contact with my victims. Usually perceived as normal to the outside world, unlike you. Patrick Bateman, he really fits this profile, but what American Psycho does that makes it really interesting is it makes the serial killer a very privileged and affluent person, which I think really adds to the fascination. Uh, torture and murder and cannibalism aren't normally associated with what we think of as white-collar crime, which explains the appeal of Hannibal Lecter. Um, Hannibal Lecter was one of two serial killers in Silence of the Lambs, as you'll remember from that episode, and the other one was kind of a weirdo who lived in a dungeon type thing, and Hannibal Lecter is this educated, erudite guy. And then there's Dexter Morgan, and then there's Patrick Bateman. 
And, you know, as we talked about in our Silence of the Lambs episode, one of the, not only was Silence of the Lambs a huge phenomenon at the time, but it spurred so many imitators. I'm sure we can call out as many as we want from the 90s of those kind of films, especially with a strong female lead. But what is kind of most defining about them outside of a strong female lead is the kind of procedural aspect. And we see that again kind of in Law and Order and CSI and whatever other fucking shows are on cable. Um, But uh, what's interesting about American Psycho is it deviates from that. And you don't actually get the whole procedural. Um, In the book, Kimball, Detective Kimball, is a really small presence. Very, very small. In the film, I think they really smartly used him as a way to kind of bookended like the three acts um, and ratchet up the tension a bit. I think I really think they needed to do that. But he's, you know, he's just kind of there to just kind of poke Patrick Bateman every so often and and, and throw him off kilter so that you're always kind of guessing what's real and what's not real. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to kind of talk about what this era was. And so if this film and the book and everything is set in 1987, you're kind of at the beginning of the the decline of the Ronald Reagan era. Um, This was the uh, kind of height of the 80s. You know, the movie Wall Street had come out. Greed is good. Gordon Gecko, blah, blah, blah. And it's it was kind of almost the turning point for yuppies. So uh, yuppies are basically a punchline now, um, which is amazing because they kind of should be. But uh, yuppies, of course, kind of stands for young urban professionals. They were the children of baby boomers um, who now have high-paying jobs. And the term was kind of put into popular culture in a 1984 Newsweek um, cover story called uh, The Year of the Yuppie. And they defined the yuppie as the dominant political and cultural force in American society at the time. And while they were... and while they were financially conservative, they were kind of progressive or liberal in social issues. So they could kind of ride that stupid wave. Um, and yuppies, I mean, when I think of the 80s, it just feels so different from everything I know of the 70s. Now, I was born in 1985, so I, I have no you know, touchstone cultural point for the 70s, except for kind of stuff my parents told me. Um, but, you know, it was very, from everything I can think of as men in the 1970s, it was, um, you know, if you were liberal, if you're outspoken, you were protesting the Vietnam War, you were um, standing up for injustice, you were supporting people who needed it, and um, maybe didn't take a shower every day, and that's cool. Um, but they, 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 they just, the pendulum swung the other way with the yuppie. It was kind of the birth of the metrosexual, as Brett Easton Ellis likes to talk about. It was all of these things that kind of coalesced into something that was erudite, something that was stable, um, that was a purely capitalistic breed of human. And it was about making money, gaining money, attaining things. Again, greed is good. You could have things, and those things would make you happy. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Where are we going now? Oh, it's still me. You guys get to hear me talk a bit I more. I thought it was. I was going to carry you. Okay. Um, so all of this kind of capitalism, all of this stuff, and like Patrick Bateman just kicking around my brain. Hide. I'm going to fucking hide. None of you ever saw me here. Um, 
But it got me thinking, and it kind of came up from um, someone who I used to study um, by the name of uh, Thomas Hobbes, who was an English philosopher, uh, also the namesake of Hobbes from Calvin and Hobbes. Um, And he published a book called Leviathan in 1651. And a lot of the writing within that book was central to this, um, the kind of natural state of man and have an and Hobbes thought the natural state of man um, is at war with society. So, you know, if you were kind of thinking as a socialistic structure that we're all helping each other, universal health care, blah, 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 then it's like everyone has to do their part. We all help out. It's all okay. But a capitalistic society or a capital, capitalistic sense of being has – it's – it's antagonistic. It's you want what that other person has, and if they're going to cut in line to get it from you, you have to tear them to shreds. So it's, it's the pursuit of pleasure, power, and work to avoid death. You want to accumulate things in order to secure some kind of lineage. And in essence, the kind of outcome of that is you live in fear. You live in fear your whole life because all you have are your objects and your things. You don't have community attachments, and everything could fall apart at a moment's notice. Um, And of course, I mean, I immediately started thinking of Patrick Bateman and all of his need to consume, to have. The things that set him off in the film and the book, and the film and the book are so closely tied together that it's, it's you know, a reservation at a restaurant. It's any of those small little things that send him into a downward spiral murderous meltdown. Um, and it's interesting to me because in order to achieve these things, Patrick Bateman has to give up his identity. In order to feed his bloodlust, he has to hide behind his mask. And it's a mask of privilege, kind of like we've talked about already. He's white, he's straight, he's good looking, he's got a high paying job, he's fine. But he's also confused for so many other yuppies. Like um, Paul Allen kind of constantly refers to him as Marcus Halberstram. And um, he lets it go because he knows he can use that later. Yeah, no, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because I, I feel like the obvious surface level analysis of this is it's capitalism and everything is commodified right down to sex and women and violence. All of those are commodities under this umbrella. Um, but what interested me sociologically about this is uh, is the line between conformity and compliance because what Hobbes is talking about is he's talking about like totally buying into survival of the fittest doggy dog capitalism there is no room for two at the top it's me or you so it's going to be me and um, I, I feel like Patrick Bateman represents a really interesting middle ground between conformity and con- Compliance because conformity refers to like you have to buy in. You have to buy into all the norms and values of that system and you have to live it and eat it and breathe it in order to climb your way to the top. Whereas compliance is, uh, I know it's shitty to fuck over my coworker for that promotion, but I'm going to play along to avoid punishment, which is to say not to get the promotion. So I think a lot of us are kind of compliant to the evils of the world. Like we, you know, we put on our suit and tie and we go to our office job and we bend over all day, every day. But ultimately, we just want to be happy and live in peace and not fuck anyone over. Whereas Patrick Bateman, he's you'll hear him say time and time again that he just wants to fit in. And on the one hand, he does because he's a serial killer. 
So he's subverting rule number one of civilization. Thou shalt not kill. You can't do that. That's a big rule, and it's a compulsion to him. And so he's not... He's not conforming to that rule. He's compliant with it. And yet, at the same time, he's competitive. Even within his milieu, he wants to be admired. And if someone calls him by the wrong name when they're complimenting his tie, that compliment matters more than the fact that they fucked up his name. Uh, Nobody listens to him, but he doesn't care as long as they're impressed by his job and his apartment. And he's racist and he's sexist, but he knows all the right things to say to appear politically correct because it's the right thing to do, right? Um, So when looking at compliance versus conformity, his passion for pop music is what really confounds me because I I feel like it's it's an exception because um, he's not compliant because his social group doesn't share his love for pop music. You would think that if you're trying really hard to appear highbrow, you'd be listening to classical music and you'd be listening to opera and you wouldn't be listening to pop. And there's even an indication in the film that his peers don't really share his tastes. He'll be like Huey Lewis and he'll be like, what? Whatever. This is the point where I would drop in a clip, but I can't, so. Clip, verbal clip. This is what we do. We just say (laughs) clip at each other. We really do, yeah, that's how we do it. Um, So he's not putting on airs, but if you pay attention to the way he talks about pop music, he has a tendency to discuss where the latest album fits into that band's discography. He'll say that he didn't like them at first because they were doing their own thing and it was a bit too weird and it was a bit too new wave, clippity clip, clip, clip. But ever since they found their commercial appeal, ever since they hit it big, ever since they made the billboards, they've achieved success at fitting into the mainstream. That is what earns his respect. So I feel like he is compliant and he respects conformity, but he himself occupies a gray space in between. And like watching that now, it's such a hilarious antithesis to the hipster. Oh, fuck yeah. It's a precursor to the hipster. It's the anti-hipster, which is so hipster. <laughs> Makes me appreciate the it's, hipster. It's the, it's, um, I really can't say enough good, thing about, uh, good things about Lori's performance in this. God, you really can't. You're right really about can't. that. Um, it, he's so great. Christian Bale is so great. I really can't imagine anyone else doing this performance. And just, um, Andrea, you're going to have to cl- drop in a clip of this, but when he's like losing it and he's about to kill Paul Allen and he just goes like, the pleasures of conformity. And I was like, God, that's what this movie is. It's this manic, disturbing, unhinged desire to fit in. And then the trappings of it, which he can't realize until the end. And that's the shocking thing about it. And it's, it's chilling to think about it. Um, and it reminds me a lot of when we talk about doubling or the doppelganger in literature, in film, anything like that. And of course, um, doppelgangers, doubling was really big in Victorian Gothic literature. So you have that with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Frankenstein and his monster, um, all of those things are kind of meant to represent one person, but a dual side to them. So like a good side and a bad side. So like me and Andrea. And, (laughs) ah, whoa. As you hold up the wine bottle. I know. I was going to top up your drink, but now I'm going to break it over your head. I think the film actually does that really literally. I I noticed, I saw a YouTube video. I didn't notice it. I noticed the YouTube video that described this phenomenon, which is that... 
He has a left side and a right side, and one side will be illuminated when that side is, like when he's acting, when he's with his friends, there's one side. When there's a side splattered with blood, when he's being fucked up, it's the other side. That must have been a good YouTube video. Now I'll refill your wine. Thank you. Be good. Do you hear this? Do you hear how she treats me? Um, so all of that kind of going to say another kind of more contemporary version of doubling would be in Fight Club. Um, Tyler Durden and what's his nuts? Um, and, what? But the character has a Those name, right? his nuts. No, he's just the narrator. Is he just narrator? Fine. What's his nuts? Um, <laughs> Um, but what's interesting about the doppelganger doubling thing, and, and Hitchcock used this all the time, um, is that the idea of doubling necessitates a confrontation at the end. That's the climax of the film. That's when you're going to see who comes out on top. Is it good side or bad side? It can be either. There are examples of both. But my theory is that because Patrick Bateman chose to double. He's choosing to assume other identities in order to facilitate this bloodlust that he has. He is forever trapped. He can never have that confrontation outside of that. So his choice to enter into it and the privilege that it yields him is the one that has trapped him. And it's, it's, um, one of, the, one of the things I always say to my friends who've gone through a breakup or a shitty time, I always say to them, the worst thing you can do to someone is forget about them. It's so fucked up. It's, it fucks them up so bad. And it's, but it's, it's, you know, to not be remembered, to not have those instances of making an impact, that's chilling. And that's all we're trying to do uh, in our lives. You make impressions on your friends, the people you care about, the people you work with. And to not have any of that is... is just such a nightmare and it's not a tangible nightmare and I think the film does a really interesting job of illustrating that because it's not a very cinematic uh, contemplation to have it's um, it's something kind of fucked up and internal and I think the fact that you spend so much of the film you know with the narration um, with all of this stuff kind of going on in Patrick Bateman's head and you see some things happen live and then you begin to question those things and then at the end you're just left with this whole like what the fuck just happened? That was really good. Thank you, baby. You're so smart. So are you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, you guys. <laughs> oh. Where are we going now? Do you want me to talk about cultural capital? Oh, always. I want to. Always. Even though we said we'd never talk about Bourdieu again. <laughs> Can you guys remember the episode where we talked about Bourdieu? Baudrillard? No. Oh, Portriard was the one who said we'd never talk about it again. We can talk about Portier. We can talk about I don't him know who all we're day. Talking about. Is he one of Patrick Bateman's friends? No, he's he's the cultural capital guy, but he also has really weird abstract spheres of existence and I don't know. I don't remember. I don't care. But within this cultural backdrop of the nineteen eighties, it's a time of very flashy consumption, which the movie and the book make very, very clear. Um and insofar as the surface level of this analysis points to Marx, as I said before, when it comes to Patrick Bateman, these commodities are really stratified, which is what brought me to Bourdieu and the concept of 
cultural capital. And cultural capital refers to non-financial assets that still have value or standing according to a given culture's standards. And they can be things like clothing, or a car, or taste, or manners and skills. And for Patrick Bateman, who clearly has a metric fuck ton of money, he can have whatever he wants. He also has a very keen awareness of brands and labels. And it's actually, in the book, it's annoying. And I think it's intentionally, conspicuously annoying that he cannot encounter a person and describe them without referring to the tags on their clothes. Or like, is this person tall or short or black or white or male or female? Like it doesn't, that's not what he sees first and foremost. And it's really irritating. It's tedious to read. Um, and you get the sense that it's really tedious to live as well. Um, and I think cultural capital is especially interesting with respect to gender, because as a woman, I'm clearly aware of the ways in which appearance plays into cultural capital for women. Traditionally, a successful man is wealthy and a successful woman is beautiful. And those are the pairs that we tend to associate, right? Like successful men have beautiful women at their sides and vice versa. And while money can be earned, women have to kind of play the cards that they're dealt, uh, insofar as beauty and fitness can, of course, be bought to a certain extent. So there is an economic component to that. Um, but I found it really interesting to engage in this text and really kind of think about the ways in which men have to kind of work harder to display their cultural capital as opposed to just their economic stuff. Like, in Patrick's world, everyone has a Rolex, Everyone has a sports car. Everyone has tons of money. And so how do you one-up each other in that context? And um, there's actually a great part in the book, and, and I saw it in one of the deleted scenes that you can find on YouTube, where he's talking um, to Courtney, uh, the woman he's having <laughs> the affair with, a.k.a. Amy. And... Um, he, uh, they're lying in bed, like, post-coital, and Patrick's, like, basically just fucking off. And... Um, and uh, in, in the book, and, and they duplicate this in the deleted scene, you can find it on, maybe we'll link this in the show notes uh, whenever this comes out. And, um, and, and she, he's, and she, um, kind of Courtney's saying to him, like, uh, Patrick, sorry, Patrick's saying, like, oh, well, you know, I, I go to the best gym, I do this. And she's like, everyone has a good body now. Mm -hmm. I, I go to the Big best deal. tailor. Like, everyone it goes to the best tailor. Yeah, yeah. And it's that total, and it's so early on in the book, and it's so fucking chilling, because mm -hmm. you just see this, he's going the one-upping thing. Like, I do this, I do that, I do this too. And she's like, yeah, he does that, you do that, he also does that, they, we all do this. It's, um, ooh. Yeah, and what it does is it... Uh it brings things down to the minutiae. And you see this so beautifully in this film where like a fucking business card. I have a business card. Any asshole can have a business card. It's a good business card. Get it from her. Mine? Yeah, it oh, looks thanks. super cool. It's That's really nice. Um, it, it, it's okay, but it's not like, you know, like eggshell on raised embossed, whatever or the tarmac. fuck. Tarmac. Yeah, yeah. With a hint of sage. With a chai spice to it. It is excellent for ripping up and rolling joints with. And I'm Canadian, so I can say that out loud. <laughs> Please let me back into my country. <laughs> anyway, 
it actually kind of reminded me of when I was in uh, when I was in high school, and I went to a Catholic high school that had a dress code. So we all dressed the same, and part of the mandate, part of the reason for that was to uh, deny some of the social stratification that comes with clothes. Um, but what it did is it just made your shoes and your jewelry and your hair that much more important. Humanity will find a way to stratify ourselves and each other, and it's sad and it's sick, but uh, but. I just love the way it did it in this film. Yeah, it's all the little touches and those little, it's because it's the little things that kill Patrick Bateman. It's the little stabs every day that send him over the edge. Mm -hmm. That's uh, incredible. And it's it's hilarious to watch. It's unsettling to watch. And um, I was going to go to to this point. Go. Go. We're going to go. We're going to go to this point. Let's go. Um, So one of the things that really started uh, grinding my gears, turning my joints, doing lots of things to my body, um, was in the book, and they really subtly hint uh, hint about it in the film, is how much Donald Trump figures into the book. I see some nods. Like, literally, not even metaphorically. Like, the word is uttered. The name is dropped. Patrick Bateman loves Donald Trump. There are several instances in the book, if you're interested in this, I'm not going to go into it because we don't probably have time, but also you should just read it because it's chilling. But basically, Donald Trump, for Patrick Bateman in the book, and I think kind of in the movie as well, is the height of sophistication. It is who he wants to be. Um, And it goes on and on throughout the book. And the scary thing about the book is, and the film And whatever you believe, whether these murders are real or they're not real, is that Patrick Bateman has the intention of them. He has the mindset. He has uh, has everything at his hands to the point where it feels tactile to him that he starts to unravel because it might not be real. And, And the scary thing about that is not only is it scary for one person to have those thoughts, is it scary for multiple anonymous people to have those thoughts? And his friends, who I have outlined here as Timothy Bryce, Craig McDermott, and David Van Patten, um, are they could all have those. Those are his buddies. They could all have those. And because this is probably like the 10% most wealthiest, wealthiest of the population, it's scary to all us normies. It's like, what, what are you actually doing with all that money and all that power? And you're whittling it away and you're wasting it and you're, you're, being, you're abusing power in the most despicable, disgusting way. And it got me thinking about, because then you can just apply the same thing to Donald Trump. And I don't think we need to question that anymore. How dangerous and psychopathic and out of touch and probably senile he is. And... It's, it, I hope it's senile, honestly. That would be a Well, mercy. I'm about to tell you something right. that will make you feel very uncomfortable. We're never getting out of this country. <laughs> Please adopt us, someone. Um, so I was kind of... I, so I was, all these links to Trump and the links to Trump and power, and uh, the film is about a condemnation about a type of lifestyle. Um, it is empty, it is meaningless, it is bullshit. And yet, we are living in a time where the height of that sophistication is now your president. Let that sink in. Probably none of you in this room did this. (laughs) But we heard some anti-Hillary sentiments today. We did. We did. I'm not happy about it. In Salem. Anyway. Anyway. I'm fine. Um, (laughs) But so I started Googling around. 
And, you know, it's a really fun Wednesday when you're Googling Donald Trump domestic violence. Because uh, so much comes up now. It's so great. It's not even about his domestic assaults. Um, but there was a book that was published in 1993 by, this is maybe the best name I've ever heard, Harry Hurt III. Uh, and it is called The Lost Tycoon, and it is about the downfall of Donald Trump um, and just kind of this expose, all of this kind of stuff, but it never really got mainstream pickup because 1993, Trump had just filed for bankruptcy. He was not happening anymore. It was prior to The Apprentice. Prior Harold to your, Hurt the third wasn't so hot right now. No, it was prior to your current third. hellscape. Um, but... One of the anecdotes that has resurfaced from this book is that um, in 1990, um, Ivana Trump, Ivanka, who's Ian mother, um, had filed for divorce, or they um, both filed for, I don't fucking know. Anyway, um, and in this book, he details um, a deposition that Ivana was doing, and she testifies that um, Donald Trump raped her uh, in a fit of rage after a scalp reduction um, operation he had received from her plastic surgeon was unexpectedly painful. I cannot imagine a more Patrick Bateman thing to do. And you can read about this book. Um, it was from a New Yorker article. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes. But it's out there. You can you know, just link, search Donald Trump painful scalp something. Um, or not. Take our word for it because that's <laughs> fucked. And, and so they've kind of, Nirvana has not fully denied it, but she's kind of said, yeah. But it's, we are living with Patrick Bateman as the president of the most powerful country in the world. And I just, if that does not scare you to your core, in the film you're about to watch, that man is your president. Yeah, I hear some awkward shifting. You we have Justin Trudeau, who is not great, but he's very handsome and looks very nice. So that's fine. <laughs> but it's, it kind of goes into this ending of the film. And the ending, it, it kind of starts when he's starting to shove the cat in the ATM. Um, and that's, it's not in the book. The book does other things, but it's a great kind of cinematic moment. And um, you have all of this stuff going on. And they shoot the old woman. And there's a shootout with the cops. and With the cops? It's so crazy. Like, he's blasting off a gun. And then there's an explosion. And you see him look at the gun. And it's like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? He is runs this into a, a building. He shoots some guys. Realizes it's not the right building. Runs into another fucking building. He's just, he's just. And then he has that maniac phone call to his lawyer. Clip. Drop in a clip of this, clip, future clip. Andrea. Um, and uh, he has this mania moment and he confesses everything. He tells him everything. Almost everything. Almost everything. Do you notice that he leaves out, um, he left out some conspicuous stuff. I didn't make a that note. That he was of Batman? <laughs> that he was Laurie? <laughs> so handsome. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I shouldn't have interjected because I can't actually remember. But I, I feel like there was a conspicuous omission in that phone call because it was, it, it, maybe it was the homeless person. Was it? Can you guys help me out? 
We don't have a live studio audience when we do this in my... <laughs> Usually um, we're just looking at our phones. Anyway, there was a conspicuous omission, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, he didn't bring that up. I guess that one wasn't a big enough deal to him to confess to. But uh, since I don't know who it is, who the fuck cares? Well, and then, of course, uh, he goes to Paul Allen's apartment, and it's not as he expects. And it's, it's the sense that nothing you do matters. And I feel like that is kind of... The terrible thing about capitalism is it uh, goes on and on without us having to do very much. We need money to live. We have people to support. We have people we care about. And we do our things that we have to do every day. And then all of it spirals out of control. And we are left with something strange, something empty, and something that I'm sure a lot of people in this room are doing your daily bits and I know we try to to, to fight against it and, and change that so that everyone has some kind of meaningful experience because this is a meaningful experience. I'm having a meaningful experience right now. Just drink a bottle of wine. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we killed um, it. We got out at a place called... <laughs> You guys know the liquor store I'm talking about? <laughs> Bunghole Liquors? <laughs> and it was so bad. We were trying to look for something like appropriate for today, but I was like, oh, it has to be a screw top because we don't have a bottle. in there like Cornholio. Because <laughs> how do you not? <laughs> what are we drinking? What are we drinking? Uh, shout out to Pacific Pino. <laughs> Pacific Pino is it? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. That's it. Uh, Patrick Bateman would hate us. <laughs> doing um, the job he'd kill us but we we do kind of i think it would be remiss as we wrap up um to not kind of mention the afterlife american psycho has i think if you go to any big halloween party you're going to see someone dressed up as patrick bateman maybe even someone's boyfriend my boyfriend did that last year it was good it was a good costume it's pretty hot <laughs> yeah because he's Lori. no because he's dustin oh <laughs> um but it has had an afterlife. I actually watched parts slash most of American Psycho 2 the other night. I did not. Um, it's with Mila Kunis and William Shatner. Um, strike one, <laughs> strike two. Keep going. Um, it's, it's something, I, I mean, plug your ears if you want to see American Psycho 2. Uh, but it basically opens with Mila Kunis's character as a child uh, killing Patrick Bateman because her babysitter brings her on a date with Patrick Bateman and then he ties her up. She, she kills him as he's killing, as she, as he's killing her babysitter. <laughs> and then she's a criminal psychologist and I don't know, William Shatner is like her professor slash mentor and the only crime he could never solve was who killed Patrick Bateman. Dun, dun, dun. Bullshit. Uh, for as much as I fucking hate Patrick Bateman, he would not let himself get killed like For that. as much as American Psycho is a vindication of the cis white male, <laughs> present us with the most un incompetent police force in a sequel, please. Basically. Uh, so if you kind of hate yourself one day, uh, try American Psycho 2. Um, it also, you got four years. It also <laughs> is... <laughs> I love you. It's not your fault. I'm so half. sorry. We're all suffering together. Uh, Jesus Christ. Um, but we do also have the American Psycho, the musical. Oh. Um, that's a thing. 
That's a thing that happened. I watched part of it. I don't like musicals, so I really didn't like this. Um, and it debuted on the West End in London, did well. Matt Smith, who's Doctor Who, was, yep. Uh, he was in it, and people were like, oh my god, that's so good. And then it came to uh, New York, went off-Broadway, then went Broadway really quickly, and then just shut down. Um, I saw a really weird clip on the Stephen Colbert show. Uh, the, his I should put in? Maybe. I don't know. It's pretty shitty music. It was half written by that guy who wrote that Barely Breathing song. I am barely breathing, and this I is can't what, find the air. This is what she does. She sings don't it, know who and then I find the clip, putting, and I put it in instead of her singing. your hair. <laughs> and I could stand here waiting, full for another day. Don't suppose blah, 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 blah. But the, um, the one I really wanted to mention, and I'm a little pissed off at myself for this one, is uh, Brett Easton Ellis's faux memoir that came out in the early 2000s um, called Lunar Park. And I currently have it in my bag, and I've not fucking finished it. And I was trying to finish it. Ugh. And it didn't happen. I was just having too much fun. And um, basically, he writes this memoir of himself and him kind of getting married and saved from this literary brat pack that he was in and all of this stuff going on. And uh, then Patrick Bateman and some of his other characters start to show up, even though he has written about writing about them within the book. So, uh, and when the, one of the more interesting parts at the very beginning of the book, he talks about writing American Psycho and how he feels like he didn't write American Psycho. It was something that visited him every night, that took over, and that wrote this book for him. And it kind of felt like that moment at the end of the film when Gene, uh, his, uh, Patrick Bateman's secretary, finds this notebook, and it's the only inclination that we have that someone else sees Patrick Bateman for what he is and who he is, and... It's scary, it's chilling, it's, it's um, a red flag for us to all do better. It looks a lot like my notebook, I'm not going to lie. It does, it does. It's doodles, that's allowed. It's an escape. Gosh, well... We're out of time. We're out of time. We're out of time. We got through it all in an hour. We had no yeah. idea how this was going to go. We're like, do we ignore the audience and just act like we're talking to each other? Do we... Uh... How'd it go, guys? Are you guys okay? Yeah. Are you happy to pay money? Um, thank you so much. We do have a couple announcements. Uh, mainly one, we really, really want to thank Kevin Lynch. Kevin! Kevin. Kevin. Uh, Salem didn't have a film fest before this. What the fuck? That's what I meant. You can have a film fest that's not horror? Why? Why? First one ever. Um, you can't imagine a better person to work with, a cooler person to work with. Um, and Salem Horror Fest is doing something that I feel like Andrea and I always wish we had, which was a place where everyone feels welcome because we have not always been welcome in the horror community. And so this is really amazing. We are so proud to be here. Um, we are so thankful to all of you. All of you. You, 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 you. Give yourselves Thank you a round. For coming out. You did this. Applause! Applause! Now we're all going to be dorks together. Are you guys ready to be dorks together? Beth? Yes, you are. Okay, we're going to do a selfie together. If you didn't realize what was happening. Um, it didn't happen unless it happened on social media. And if Patrick Bateman slash Lori were here right now, 
Oh my uh, God. That He's was a gift to you. Are you gonna... in real life. Can we just put in a clip of him yelling at Mick G when they made the Terminator movie? Oh, I heard that it's clip. It's a fucking lie. It's a fucking lie. Everybody stand up and look stand like up. you're having stand the best. Stand up. Stand up. Kevin, yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. We Thank are you the for that. faculty Thank you for of us. We have to go return some VHS tapes. 